Today's scripture reading comes to us from Luke chapter 2, verse 8 through 11. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to NCF. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my joy and privilege in sharing with you God's word today. I hope you had a wonderful week and that you're now ready and prepared to hear what God has to say to us on this beautiful morning. Would you now join me in bowing your heads as we ask for the Lord to bless our time together. Father, we ask that you would now prepare our hearts and sharpen our minds to receive the word of God. The same word of God that brought forth creation out of nothing, the same word of God that brought into existence reality, our very being, the same word of God who has come to us in human form to bring salvation, to bring good news, and to bring the hope and the promise of renewal. Father, I ask now that you would bless us and that you would be especially amongst those of us who are hurting, who need encouragement, who need to be empowered by the good news of the gospel. Father, I also ask that you would consider those here among us who are seeking after truth, who are investigating the Christian faith, who are wondering whether or not indeed, Jesus, you are who you claim to be, their creator who you have summoned here to know you and to be blessed by a relationship with you. Father, I pray that you will use this message to quicken their hearts and their minds to where they would have new life and renewed purpose, living out the very ancient purpose in which you created mankind for. And now, Lord, we pray that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people together said, amen and amen. Location, location, location. If you live long enough in this city, you have no doubt have heard that phrase before. And if by chance you did not, nevertheless, you would have thought what that statement means. Either because you're trying to find your next apartment, hoping that it'll give you a shorter commute to your workplace or... Because you're trying to find that perfect house in that perfect school district right next to your perfect neighbors. As New Yorkers, we are very well aware about the importance of place. So much so that the very next follow-up question that we ask a perfect stranger that we're trying to know, the first being, so what do you do, is this one. So where are you from? We know that place is important, but the question is why? Well, the answer is not too hard to figure out. Consider some of the most important moments and events of your life. Your first date, your first kiss, your wedding day, the first death in your family. These events come straight to the forefront of your mind in high definition whenever you go back to those places where those events and moments have occurred. Do they not? Places matter because they not only say a lot about who we are, but they also say about a lot of who we could be as it pertains to how we would treat other people. Case in point, why is it that politicians these days when they're running for office always have some sort of commercial or ad campaign where they say statements like, I don't come from Wall Street, I come from Main Street. Why do they say that, right? Because politicians know and so do you. That the places that have impacted us, the places that we come from, say a lot about who we are, but it also says a lot of how we would treat those who would be under our influence and under our responsibility. And guess what? That is also true of the Lord Jesus himself. You know, 
There are a lot of places that have been blessed by the presence of Jesus when he walked on this earth 2,000 years ago. And for $89.99, if you go to Israel, you can actually go on a guided tour following literally the footsteps of Jesus. I'm not kidding. If you go to Israel, there are tons of tour guides that will charge you $89.99 where you can follow the way of the master, so to speak. Now, perhaps for some of you, $89.99 just seems a little bit too steep of a price, which as your pastor, I'm quite disappointed to hear because I know for many, if not all of you, will easily drop that for a nice meal in the city or for a new pair of boots this winter, right? But... I'm not here to judge. I'm not here to get angry, right? Let's say that's a little bit too steep to where you would never consider actually going on a physical tour following the guided places of Jesus. But you know what? I have good news. Because as we begin our Advent sermon series, our Christmas sermon series, we're going to do a sermonic tour of the various places of Jesus, specifically places that are attached to the birth of Christ and immediately following the birth of Christ. And today, We're going to take a look at the place that our passage identifies for us as it surrounds the birth of Christ. That's identified in Luke chapter 2 in verse 11, where it tells us that Jesus was born in the city. Specifically the city of David, but specific, but nevertheless a city. A city. A city. Now that is so interesting. Out of all the places that the eternal son of God could have manifested in human form, why does he choose to be born into a city? Especially when you consider the types of people who made awareness of the fact that he was born. A bunch of shepherds living out in the country. You would think that if God knew ahead of time, which he did, in terms of who would make first contact to his beloved son becoming a baby... That it would be a bunch of country shepherds that he would have made sure that his son would have been born closer to them in the country somewhere, not in the heart of the city. And to further my case, if you consider, is everything okay? (laughs) Okay, they'll be fine. I have five kids. They scream like that all the time. And to further my case, if you consider one of the most popular and well-known parables of Jesus, one of the teachings of Jesus, where he identifies those who make it into his kingdom... It causes us to be even more confused because who does he say makes it into his kingdom? Luke 14, starting in the 23rd verse, it says this. So his master, representing Jesus, said, go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone who you find to come so that the house, my kingdom in heaven, will be full. Interesting. It seems that God gravitates. He has a liking to. He has a inclination towards those who are out into the country, those who are in far off, cornered off, forgotten places. And yet it tells us in our passage that when God chose to be born, he orchestrated it in such a way that he would be born in the city. Why? Well, that's the question that our passage is going to teach us today in the hopes that we will come to not only understand more about Jesus, but the significance of the Christmas story. And so with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you today. First, we're going to talk about the blessings of the city. Then we're going to talk about the curse from the city. And finally, we're going to end it with the hope of the city, or excuse me, for the city. The blessings of the city, the curse from the city, and finally, the hope for the city. Let's begin. First, the blessings of the city. Now, I know that when many of you hear the title of that first point, it kind of sounds oxymoronic, doesn't it? The blessings of the city. What pastor do you, excuse me, what pastor, what city do you live in, pastor? Because the city that I live and work in doesn't seem to be filled with blessings. In fact, quite the opposite. It seems to be filled with nothing but curses and misery. And listen, I get it. 
I really do. In fact, I get it so well that we're going to devote my entire second point on that very issue. But we would really be remiss. We would really be selling ourselves short if we do not consider a very interesting perspective that the Bible has about the city. Case in point, Psalm 107, we read, starting in the fourth verse, the following. Some wandered in desert waste, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Pause right there. Your attention, please. This is a very interesting passage because... What it's essentially saying is that one of the ways that God expresses his love to mankind is that he provides a city for mankind to live in. Now, you might be wondering, how exactly is the city an expression of God's love? Well, let's take a closer look at this passage to find out. Again, verse 4 and 5. Read it again with me. Some wandered in desert ways, finding no way to... Uh, no way to a city to dwell in hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Now from these two verses, the psalmist is making a very strong statement about the significance of the city. In fact, he's creating this cause and effect idea. Okay. Because some people could not get to the city. The effect was they were hungry. They were thirsty. They were not able to live. In other words, by not being in the city, right? They had no food, they had no water, and hence they would have no life. But conversely, if you got into the city, you had food, you had water, you had life. Okay? You see, for the psalmist, the city provided the basic necessities of a flourishing life to where it created such positive contribution to humanity to where the psalmist would go so far as to say, this is an expression of God's love. Now again, I know that from your personal experiences, this does not seem to be compatible with what it is saying in this passage. Because I know that you have personally observed people who are literally homeless, who are literally thirsty, maybe who are literally dying. And not only do you personally observe these things, but you also hear about atrocious things from other people or on the news about senseless violence, unnecessary crime, right? Our experiences of the city seem to contradict what verse 4 and 5 of our passage is saying here in 107. The city does not seem to be a place where the hungry can eat and the thirsty can drink. But here's the thing. Could it be that your experiences of the city are not the full experiences of the city? Maybe, just maybe... There are a lot of great things about the city that are happening, that are blessing mankind, that you're simply not aware of, or because you're so fixated on what's wrong with the city, you're blind to the obvious ways in which the city is flourishing and doing wonderful things for mankind. I mean, consider this question. Why are there so many homeless and hungry and thirsty in the city? Is it because the city makes people that way? Or could it be that the homeless and thirsty thrive or excuse me, flock to the city because they know this is the best place to be for them. According to recent sociological studies, the answer seems to be the latter, not the former. It's been surveyed that in the next 35 years, over 70% of the world's population are going to be living in urban areas. Over 70% of the world's population in the next 35 years are going to be living in cities. Now, just to give you an idea of how astounding that figure is, back in the 1800s, you know how many of the world's population lived in cities? Just 2%. In 
In the 1900s, you know how many people were living in the cities? Just 14%. Now, in just less than 150 years, over 70% are going to be living in cities. Clearly, there's something going on. There's some issue. There's some movement. There's some dynamic where people are flocking to the city. And the question is, why? In his recent book, The Triumph of the City, Harvard econ professor by the name of Edward Glazier states, that cities are actually the healthiest, greenest, and richest, both culturally and economically, places to live. And here's what's interesting about what he said in his study. He says that New Yorkers, you guys, you actually outlive your peers in other parts of this country. Right. It's true. When it comes to rates of heart disease, cancer, right, you actually are faring much better than your non-New York peers. And he goes on to say that more than half of the country's income that causes our economy to flourish the way that it has comes mostly from 22 metropolitan areas. Think about that for a moment. Over half of the economy, our country's economy, right? The income that we need to build businesses and infrastructure, all of that, most of it comes from cities. Clearly, it's seen from a socioeconomic standpoint that a city or these cities are special places because they provide unique blessings that no other place provides. But here's the question. Does the Bible confirm all of this? I mean, aside from this obscure passage in Psalm 107, what does the rest of the Bible have to say? Well, I'd like to draw your attention to the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Why? Well, as one of my professors in seminary once said, if you understand Genesis 1 through 11, you really understand the whole Bible. And so let's do that now by looking at Genesis 1, where starting in verse 26, it reads this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. <clears throat> and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now this is a very familiar passage. Sure, many of you have heard many sermons, many Bible studies on it, but it also happens to be some of the most misunderstood verses in all of the Bible. Because when most people read these verses, they think <clears throat> that the main thing God wanted Adam and Eve to do was to make a bunch of babies and to be zookeepers, basically, right? And that is not what it's saying, because if it was what God intended, then he would have said something like, keep over all the creatures and maintain the earth. But he doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, have dominion over all the creatures and subdue the earth. Those two words, dominion and subdue, carry this idea of managing, create, cultivating innovations, manage creatively, right? For those of you who work in the city, you're familiar with those words, those phrases, right? Those are the phrases that you hear in the city. That's urban lingo, right? You see, in Genesis 1, God is commissioning Adam and Eve to take the garden that they were placed in, and to use it in such a way and rearrange the resources to create a thriving city. Case in point, listen to what one world-renowned Old Testament scholar by the name of Meredith Klein, what he says about this very verse in Genesis 1. He says, the couple in the garden was to multiply, so providing the citizens of the city. Their cultivation of Earth's resources as they extended their control over their territorial environment through the fabrication of sheltering structures would produce the physical architecture of the city. And the authority structure of the human family engaged in the cultural process would constitute the centralized government by which the life and functioning of the city would be organized under God. The cultural mandate given at creation was thus a mandate to build 
the city. God intended Adam and Eve and all their descendants, all of us, to build a great city, to build great cities across the earth. Why? Because God uniquely crafted Adam and Eve and their descendants, us, to be channels of his blessings. And the primary way in which we would channel that is through the means of an urban environment. And this is something that we see and experience in our city today. It's in the city that we have the poor being taken care of, the homeless being cared for, the hungry being fed. It's in the city where those who are being victimized and oppressed go to to get their justice. It is in the city where we have elected officials crafting laws, amending laws, and enforcing the law to create peace in our society, right? It's in the city that we find art and drama and food being presented in its highest presentation. It's in the city where investors innovators, entrepreneurs come together and create goods and services and technology that make our lives today so much better. Without the city, there would be no universities. There would be no soup kitchens. There would be no museums. There would be no city hall. There would be no stadiums. There would be no concert halls. There would be no Wall Street. Wait, what? (laughs) Wall Street. Did you just say Wall Street? PJ, I think you just undermined your whole argument. No, I didn't. I use it as a creative way to transition to my second point. You like that, right? So let's do that now by going into my next point, the curse from the city. Let's go back to the passage of Psalm 107. This time, let's fixate on the first half of verse four, where it reads, some wandered in desert wastelands. Here, the psalmist is telling us that outside of the city is a desert wasteland. It's barren. It's lifeless, right? But notice what he says. He says, some wandered in the desert wastelands. People are out there, right? And when you look at the description of the desert wasteland as being this desolate, lifeless, right, terrible place to live, you wonder, how is that possible? Because consider again where God originally placed mankind in a flourishing garden, the complete opposite of a desert, right, where there's life thriving, where there are diverse ecosystems working together to create nothing but joy and happiness, right, and thriving biological, psychological living. To where we ask ourselves, what happened? How did people end up in the very opposite place that God intended? How do mankind end up out in the desert to where they're wandering out there, where they're desperately looking for a city? Well, again, we have to go back to the book of Genesis. But this time, we go to Genesis 11, where we hear the story, the first story account of the very first human skyscraper. In Genesis 11... We hear about the story about the city of Babel. And for those of you who are not familiar with the city of Babel in scripture, it's basically an ancient city filled with very ambitious, very driven people. Okay. Take a listen to what these people, these citizens of this great city said about themselves and what they wanted to do. Starting in verse four of Genesis 11, it says, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top into the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The citizens of Babel had an intense and obsessive desire of wanting to build a massive building that reached up into the heavens. Now, some commentators naively say that the reason why they wanted to do that is because they had a yearning to get close to God. They wanted a fellowship with God. And so they wanted to build, right, a stairway to heaven, so to speak, right, to get close and to commune with this God that they were yearning for. No, that's not what they were doing. And the reason why I know that is because of what they say as the reason why they wanted to do it. Again, in verse 4, let us make a name for ourselves. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to know what they're saying, right? Especially us New Yorkers. 
We know what it means when people want to build a name for ourselves. I mean, you just go to the Upper East Side. There you will see a massive building where in gold letters you'll see the name of a person who built this city, excuse me, this building, right? And not only in this city, but in other great cities like L.A., Chicago, and even in the current city that he resides in, right? You know the house that he lives in right now. It's a big white house right in the center of the Potomac, right? Why did this individual build these massive skyscrapers with his big name? Is it because he wants to commune with God? Is it because he wants to get, I can tell you right now that this individual does not want to get close to God, right? If you guys think you do, come see me for some counseling because I know for a fact that is not why he did it, okay? You see, Genesis 11 teaches us that the city has the unique ability of arousing people sinful, ambitious desires to make a name for themselves to where they're willing to conquering anyone, even God himself. And for those of us who live in New York, we know that this is true. We see it all. I mean, this is the culture that we live and breathe in. I mean, consider the song that is characteristic of our city. You know that song. Good old Frank sings it all the time. You hear it in bars and in clubs everywhere, right? New York, New York, you remember how it goes? Start spreading the news. I'm leaving today. I want to be a part of it. New York, New York. If I can make it there, I'll make it anywhere. New York, New York. I want to wake up in a city that never sleeps and find I'm number one, top of the list, king of the hill. As much as the city has the great potential of uniquely blessing mankind, it also has the unique ability of bringing out the worst in us. Our desire to matter, our desire for success, our desire for significance can get twisted and perverted to where we're willing to do anything to anyone just so that we can make a name for ourselves. And that is what happened in Genesis 11. That's what happened in the city of Babel. And it's because God witnessed this occurring in the heart of man that he came in judgment and he totally closed down shop. He brought judgment against the city. He dispersed the citizens of Babel to where now he kicked them out of the city gates to where now where they are, they're in the desert, right? They're outside of the gates of the city. They're in the wastelands, right? Why? Because these people no longer live to the moral and ethical standards that make a city great. And instead he put them in a place that more matches what's going on inside of them. The reason why God placed man into the lifeless, unmerciful barren desert is because that's what the human heart has become. It's become lifeless. It's become unmerciful. It's become cold, right? That is why man is in the city. Okay. Their hearts no longer reflected the moral and ethical values of the city. And so here we are now after hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of years after the Babel incident, and we're still in the desert. Oh, don't get me wrong. Many of us are living in a thriving city where we're far removed from the physical harshness of the desert. But that doesn't change the fact that you and I wake up every morning with a desert in our hearts, with a moral wasteland within, right? And it's because of the moral barrenness within that has caused the city without to become contaminated and perverted to where now a city that was meant to be a place of safety and beauty and hope has transformed into a place of violence, corruption, and despair. And what's more even scary about all this is that sociologists tell us that all the corruption, all the immorality, all the suffering that we see in the city doesn't stay confined in the city. It actually spreads out, out into the suburbs to where now some of the major epidemics that we as a society are struggling with, sex trafficking, the meth crisis, they're not just thriving in the dark corners of the city here. 
They're also thriving in the backyards of suburbia. Some even doing better than their city counterparts. Right? How do you explain that? You explain it because, remember, the city is a conduit. But it could be a conduit of not only spreading the blessings of God, but it also can be an effective conduit of spreading the curses of man. Right? And here's the thing. It is a big problem. It's such a big problem that even the blessings of the city, whether you're talking about education, law and order, uh, social services, none of these things can seem to undermine all of the evil and frustration and corruption that human sin has brought into the city and is now spreading out. To where even if you move out of the city and think you're away from it, just wait a couple years. It's going to catch up to you and it will definitely come to your kids. It's going to come to them. And so the question is, what do we do about this? How do we deal with this problem, right? Since we can't move away from it, since we can't out-tax it, since we can't over-educate it, since we can't enforce it, what is the solution? How do we deal with the problem of the human heart, right? When the means of spreading the blessings of God, the conduit, the city, has become so broken. The answer leads me to my final point, the hope for the city. Let's take one final look at the passage in Psalm 107, because I want to point out something. Look at what it says in verse 9. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Now, what I find so interesting is that this passage begins in verse 4 with God saying that he's going to use the city to satisfy every physical hunger and physical thirst. But then in verse 9, he changes it to say that through the city, he's going to satisfy every spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst. Notice it doesn't say that he satisfies the thirsting tongue and the hungry stomach, but he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul. He makes this transition from physical hunger and thirst to spiritual hunger and thirst. Why? What is this transition about? But perhaps more importantly, what exactly does it mean to have spiritual hunger? What does it mean to have spiritual thirst? Well, thankfully, we don't have to take an educated guess because Jesus himself tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Listen to what he says there. He says, blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, for they will be filled. There it is. To be spiritually hungry, to be spiritually thirsty, is to yearn for righteousness, to yearn to be pure morally, to be ethically integrous, right? It's to be the people that God has created us to be. Now, with that insight discovered, we plug it back into 107 of the Psalms, right? And we come to understand what the author is saying. He is saying that God is somehow, someway going to use a city, right, to undo the barrenness within us the moral corruption of the inner desert in our hearts, which is so intriguing because how is that possible? How is God able to take the very city that brings out the worst in us to where he can now bring transformation and hope? How does he do that? The answer, he does it with Christmas. See, now we can finally understand the question of the day. Out of all the places that the son of God could have been born in, why does he choose to make his first mark into the world, into the city? Because Jesus is saying by being born into the city, he says, I am the hope of the city. I am the hope to the corruption of the inner desert that gets inflamed and agitated and aroused by the city. I am the hope of mankind. I am the hope that brings streams of living water inside the human heart to where instead of producing thorns and thistles that are representative of mischaracterizations and poor ethical living, I bring fruits of righteousness. I take what is barren within and I produce fruit 
that brings hope and renewal and rejuvenation, right? The Christmas message teaches us that God came into the world as Jesus Christ to do what? To save us from our sins, to save us from the moral barrenness that is within. And the way we receive the salvation is by trusting that God loved us enough to come into the world as Jesus Christ so that he could take on the full penalty of all the consequences, all the punishment that we deserve because we are so barren within us, because we have this inner desert that is so corrupt that creates nothing but pain and misery to ourselves and those around us, including our loved ones, right? He came into the world so that he could suffer the casting away out into the darkness of being in the desert. That's what happened when Jesus died on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he suffered, right? The ultimate desert. He suffered judgment, no mercy. He suffered lifelessness. He suffered death. He suffered unmercifulness, the wrath of God, right? Why? So that if you put your faith in him, if you trust that he came to take your place, You would never have to cry out what he cried out for you if you place faith in him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus went out to the ultimate desert on Calvary's hill, a place where there is no mercy, no love, no life, so you could have the hope of one day being the citizen of the greatest city ever, the city that is yet to come, a city not built by human hands, the city that we read about in Revelation 21, It says this, then I saw a new heavens and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth has disappeared and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. This is the hope. That is ours when we come to understand why Jesus came to be born in the city, right? And when you possess this hope, again, what happens? Moral transformation, right? To where now when you understand and comprehend and accept this idea that this Jesus loved you, this must, that love functions like desert rains coming upon the barren wastelands. You ever watch on Discovery Channel a desert? And a monsoon of rain comes upon it. It's the most astonishing thing. Within 30 minutes, right? The desert that looks dead and waste just comes to life, right? With trees and flowers and fruition. Everything is just changed. That is a perfect picture of what happens when the love of God in the gospel that is seen in the Christmas story comes upon you. There is moral barrenness that is changed and now there is life. And like a tree bears fruit, your life bears characteristics that bring such blessing to the world characteristics like love joy peace patience kindness goodness gentleness faithfulness self-control right the fruits of the spirit and when you exhibit these kinds of characteristics not only are you protected against the corruption of the city but you actually reverse the corruption of the city that you live in see i am convinced that what makes a city great is not when you have a thriving, booming economy, not when you have an amazing championship sport franchise, as much as we wish we had one, right? It doesn't come from educational institutions that are high-ranking. No, what brings a city to its peak and flourishing of human life is when God's people who are in it are living out 
the reason to why Jesus came to be born in the city. But here's my question, NCF. Do you know the reason Jesus came into the city? I hope you do, because I just spent the past 30 minutes trying to explain it to you, right? But do you live it out? Do you want to live it out? Are you here, NCF, to be a blessing to the city that we call our home? I pray that it is, because there are so many out there who are thirsty, who are hungry to know who you know. Let's take a few moments now to consider some next steps of what we can do in response. If you're here today and you're not a Christian and you feel today's message has really resonated you or took you to that tipping point where you're now ready to accept Christ as Lord and Savior, take this time now and pray to the Lord and invite him into your heart and make him the Lord of your life. And then come talk to me or Pastor James. We would love to help you follow up on how you can grow in this new life-giving relationship with Jesus. Number two, Take this time to memorize Psalm 107 verses 4 to 9 and memorize it and ask yourself this week questions like, do my goals in life align with what God wants the city to be for mankind? If they do not, how can I change them so they do while still using the gifts and opportunities that I've been given? Think about the things that you're shooting for as you work in this city, as you go to school in this city, as you dream about being a part of this city. What are the things that you are chasing after Is it for the flourishing of mankind or is it to imitate that guy in the office right now of making your name great? And finally, share your answers with your Oikos groups. Spend some time praying for one another, asking for some accountability and to be challenged so that we can truly live out the life that we've been called to live in this great city that we call our home. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us now to see the significance of why your son was not born out into the country plains, was not born out into the rule of society, but instead to the metropolitan of the city. Father, we know that you love all people no matter where they come from, but yet there is a reason. There is significance of why you chose to be born in the city and what it means for us as your people. God, we pray that we would live out what was spoken of today and that we would not seek to make a name for ourselves that is so easy for us to do as we come under the influence of this city that we call our home, but instead we remember where our true home is and therefore it would compel us to live differently, to live as faithful, beautiful citizens that could transform this city to make it even better than it is right now. Father, we pray that we would live out this mandate and that we would live out this call. Give us the grace to do it now, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.